Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. The municipal bond market has been long prized as a stable, tax-advantaged income generator for individuals. And after years of a low interest rate environment, the asset class is getting renewed attention. And it's not just from investors. Tech disruptors are eyeing the space, and they see a massive, disjointed, uncoordinated market in need of modernization. I spoke with Steve Winterstein on the state of the municipal bond market. He's a 360-degree view of the muni bond space. He's the founder of SP Winterstein & Associates, which advises dealers and buy-side firms on municipal fixed-income data and technology procurement, vendor engagement, workflow, and market structure. He has over 35 years' experience in municipal SMA and mutual fund management, electronic trading, and fintech. Most recently, he was head of municipal fixed income at Market Access and head of capital markets at Alpha Ledger. We'll tackle his view of thoughtful municipal fixed income management, the size, delivery, and fractionalization of the market, and the technological challenges faced. Finally, we'll get some input on where Steve thinks AI, blockchain, and some of the other buzzy words out there may have some real-world impact on the asset class. Welcome aboard, Steve. Fraser, it's good to be with you. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on. Happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. So let's go a little bit into where you are with the muni market. You come from a place where you manage munis, you've managed people managing munis, you've thought about the pipes and the technology around the municipal bond industry and ecosystem. Maybe take us through a little bit about your career so people have a context of how you've become such an expert in the space. I started my career back in the mid-1980s, actually in retail. I worked for E.F. Hutton, which is now no longer in existence for a time, and then worked for Leg Mason, which at the time was a broker-dealer. I became somewhat of a municipal liaison to small banks and small institutions throughout central Pennsylvania. And my mentor was the head trader at Leg Mason, and he took me under his wing and started to explain the complexities of the municipal market to me. After about four or five years in that seat, I decided that I wanted to go to the buy side because I felt like there was so much more to learn on the buy side than simply selling municipal bonds. And I joined a company called Meridian Asset Management, which was a subsidiary of Meridian Bancorp. They were based in Valley Forge near Philadelphia. And I learned my stock and trade over the next five years at Meridian. And in 1993, I got a call from PNC Bank, and they were looking to start a buy-side municipal separate account management division. And they wanted me to head that effort up. I joined there, and it seems like it was only a day or two, but I guess it was about a year, and they bought BlackRock which was not a good omen for me, although it ended up being just fine. Funny how things work out, but I spent the next several years trying to get a municipal SMA business off the ground while BlackRock was managing large institutional money. Finally did that in 99 and 
we grew that to be, I guess it was about $7 billion in assets over about a 10-year period of time, 11-year period of time. I left there in 2011 and joined Wilmington Trust, where I was hired to come in and essentially re-engineer their municipal bond product. I spent eight years at Wilmington Trust. And after that, I decided that I wanted to take a stab at technology. And I had always been very interested in technology as it related to fixed income and more specifically to municipal fixed income. And I decided to put my money where my mouth is. And I took a leap over to market access where I went to run municipals there, did that for three years. And I got the bug again. I was approached by a couple of folks out on the West Coast, former PIMCO people, who were interested in recording municipal data on blockchain. And so I left market access and went to Alpha Ledger. That went sideways for me after about 11 months. And soon I found myself in a position where I was approached by several technology firms to serve as a strategic advisor. And that's where I am right now. So let's talk a little bit about the way you think about investing in municipal bonds. You've come at it from all sorts of directions. You were on the side of selling the municipal bonds. You were on the side of managing and understanding where the opportunities were and then building the infrastructure to execute all of that. Maybe talk to us a little bit about the two pillars of municipal bond investing, sort of how you think about credit and then how you think about duration and other components that are important in putting together municipal portfolios. Most municipal managers approach the problem of credit and duration, let's call it yield curve positioning, how much risk to take and measuring risk and managing risk. They look at it like they have to have a view on where interest rates are going. And they look at everything in a historical context. And I say they, and I include my former self in that camp where I always felt like I had to have a view. I had to have a view on where interest rates were going. I had to position the portfolios correctly in light of my view of where rates were going. And then I had to make the right credit bets. What I learned over the years is that I am unaware of any evidence that anyone has ever been able to consistently and accurately forecast the future path of interest rates. And I guess I would add consistently over time. And I started to watch the top quartile performers in the space. And what I observed was that a manager who was in the top quartile usually came up from the bottom rungs and they spent a specific period of time there, but eventually fell back to the lower half. They certainly fell out of the top quartile. And usually, not always, but usually it had to do with a bet on the curve, on the direction of interest rates, the shape of the yield curve, and how they were apportioning their risk budget across the term structure of interest rates. And so they would get it right, they would get it right, and they would get it right again, and then they would get it wrong. And then we would find that that manager all of a sudden went to the back of the class. And that was a consistent theme among most managers. And so I actually had a revelation that I didn't need to have a view on interest rates and where they were going. And I didn't need to have a view on the yield curve and the shape of the yield curve and whether it was going to steepen or flatten or bulge or twist or whatever the shape of the curve might evolve into. I didn't have to have a view on that. 
And where I was going to expend my calories was on the second pillar, as you pointed out, and that is credit research. And so we were very careful to express our views. Nobody says make bets anymore. They say express views. Where we were going to express our views was in state allocation, supply and demand, sector allocation, and good old-fashioned roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, and do credit research. And so that's how I spent the latter half of my days on the buy side. And so that evolved into sort of a bus map approach where the client in many ways helped to select the duration that they were going to be investing in. You'd sort of take them through some questioning, I guess, that would sort of figure out what kind of risk they would be willing to take if interest rates went up or down a quarter point, half a point, a point if they stayed the same. And then ultimately, at that point, you sort of take a look at it and say, if interest rates go up 1% and you see red brackets in your statements, are you comfortable with that over time? Or do you need to take less risk on the duration? Does that sound right? That's exactly right. And that was exactly the exercise that we would go through with clients. What I also discovered early on in the game is that investors typically don't understand risk in the fixed income markets. And even the most sophisticated equity investors think they understand risk. And as it turns out, they don't fully grasp the risk equation. And so I always thought that it was a better idea to actually show someone what could happen in a portfolio if interest rates took a specific path. And so I would publish a weekly market update. And in that weekly market update, I would publish a stress test, if you will, a horizon and scenario analysis of the three different strategies that we would run. So we ran a short-term strategy, we ran an intermediate strategy, and we ran a short intermediate strategy. And each one of those had very specific rules around the term structure of the portfolio, the duration of the portfolio, and so on. And so what we would do is run those different strategies hypothetically through a three-month, a six-month, and a 12-month time horizon, and we would shock the yield curve. We would leave it unchanged. We would move it up 50 basis points, up 100 basis points, and then we would lower it 50 and lower it 100 over those three different time frames. And so it would give investors a good sense of their price volatility, their potential income return, and other sources of return yield, for example, and something we call roll down the yield curve, it would give them a good sense of what they could expect given a change in interest rates. So we didn't need to forecast interest rates. We could simply look at a hypothetical, what would happen if rates would change? And it would never be exact. It was always an approximation, but it helped an individual size risk. And what most individual investors and institutional investors discovered is the longer their time frame, the more volatility they could tolerate. And then I would have the conversation that everyone overestimates their tolerance for pain. They overestimate their staying power in the market and that we needed to dial it back a little bit from where they thought they were comfortable. It wasn't always a perfect formula, Fraser, but it was a good roadmap, a bus map, if you will, to the right strategy. And what it did, it didn't make people happier or uh, less happier with the outcome. What it did was it managed those expectations. And so 
we took surprise off the table, which is the most important thing that investors want to avoid, and that is surprise to the downside. And so I always approached it from a philosophical viewpoint that people are in fixed income because they look at it as ballast to their portfolio. It's the anchor to windward. And so the last thing they want is a surprise. And if we get a surprise to the upside, well, that's okay, but it may also indicate that we were taking risks we shouldn't have been taking. But what we really wanted to avoid was surprise to the downside. And so these horizon and scenario analyses seemed to disabuse an investor of the idea that it would be smooth sailing no matter what happens. I think to the Silicon Valley Bank being incorrectly positioned in their treasury with their fixed income investments. And maybe an analysis like that would have been useful for them. Seems like they willingly took on an interest rate bet, whether they knew it or not. For individuals for whom municipals tend to be sort of an interesting part of their portfolio, either from an after-tax perspective or an income-generating perspective, how do you help them think about that? If an individual came to you and said, look, interest rates seem low, maybe they're going up, maybe they're going down. I don't know how to bring my own expertise into it. How would you guide that discussion so that they came to a place that fell into a reasonable area of risk for them? Gosh, that is as they used to say, the $64,000 question. It's a comfort level of what an investor is willing to lose over a specific time period. And that's always a difficult thing um, to estimate, mostly because people look at their portfolio, their municipal portfolio as the safe allocation. And so If you took a poll, I think you'd find that the overwhelming majority of investors would say they're not willing to lose any money. Then they immediately fall back to the old saw that if I don't sell, I don't lose. And so I'll hold my bonds to maturity. I don't trade my bonds. And we end up in a place where I may not think it's the best solution, but the client, the investor is the most comfortable. There are problems with the buy and hold strategy. And one of the problems that is obvious is that credit evolves over time. And so the idea that if I buy a portfolio of municipal bonds and I ladder that portfolio out, my intent may be to not sell, maybe to hold to maturity. But as credit evolves, I may find it necessary to sell because of credit deterioration. I'd also point out that I've never met a buy and hold investor that at some point doesn't sell, which I think is very curious. And I tried to point this out to those who pursued that buy and hold bond ladder that I never really met someone who eventually didn't want to reallocate to equities, have a liquidity event where they needed the cash, they were building a home down at the beach, whatever it might be, they needed to tap into that portfolio. And then of course, we would need to sell, but we didn't plan Accordingly, it was originally structured to hold to maturity, and that can often end in tears as well. So it's almost being an armchair psychologist in addition to being a portfolio manager when you're helping an individual investor choose these different strategies. So if we sort of pivot from buy and hold, which I sort of associate with keeping municipal bonds and brokerage accounts and having them sit there and calling up your broker and getting a rundown of certain facts or ideas, and then moving into the managed component, which either could be in an SMA or a fund or an ETF component. 
For an investor, an individual investor in particular, maybe take us through what you think the strengths and weaknesses are of those methods of delivery, I guess. Brokerage accounts where the financial advisor is serving as a broker selling the client bonds, that is an immediate and obvious misalignment of interests. And that is to say that the broker's job is to sell the client something. And the client is usually unknowing. The broker may be unknowing. So you have somebody who's not intimately familiar with the asset class selling someone who knows nothing about the asset class a product. And to me, that's a very dangerous proposition. And there are obvious exceptions. And I'm just making a generalization there. But The traditional retail account has evolved over time to where there are four or five different options away from the broker, the rep, selling the client bonds. The broker can now act as an advisor and charge an account level fee. So we think of rep as advisor in that capacity, and the rep as advisor doesn't have discretion over the account, still has to get the client's permission, but essentially the client is no longer paying a commission or a mark, as we call it, in those bonds to a markup to buy that security. If it's a feed at the account level, then it's simply like a wrap fee. And then there's also a rep as portfolio manager, which is the same rep as advisor, except the rep has discretion over the account to manage according to a set of objectives. So those are the three strains, if you will, of a retail brokerage account in that sense. And then individual investors have all these other alternatives. Certainly, the rep can recommend a professionally managed municipal separately managed account. And most wirehouses, most of the bulge bracket banks like Bank of America and Morgan Stanley and UBS and the list goes on, most of them have a list of approved separately managed account managers of municipals. And then the rep can select those and one of those or two of those to fit the client's objectives and off you go. The other way, of course, is mutual funds, and that tends to be a one-size-fits-all kind of solution, although there are so many different flavors of funds these days that that almost falls in the category of mass customization, where I want New York-only short-term maturities, and I want investment grade or higher, and there is typically a list of funds out there that I can choose from. And then finally, we have the ETFs. And those have really gotten quite a bit of acceleration over the last, call it five years. And I think it's a wonderful thing because it allows a client instant liquidity in a market where they otherwise may not have it. So if we think about having your account separately managed by a professional manager, typically the chain of events that has to occur for me as an investor to get cash out of my account is that I have to call my representative. My representative in turn has to call the account manager or the bond manager. The bond manager has to pick a list of bonds to sell. Regular way settlement is in two days. T plus two. And so I have to wait for those things to settle. And sometimes there's a delay between the phone call that my advisor makes to the manager and the bonds that the manager actually selects. Whereas in an ETF, it's almost real-time liquidity. 
I can choose to sell my stock right now. I can sell it. I know what I got for it. I still have to wait for settlement, but I know exactly what my cash proceeds are going to be. And I don't have to worry about picking and choosing individual bonds to liquidate. So when using a vehicle to invest in munis in particular, oftentimes we're all well conditioned to be understanding how bond portfolios or any portfolios match up against their relevant index. Maybe talk to us a little bit about A, the size and fractionalization of the municipal bond market and why that causes problems with indexing. Indexing is something I've spent a lot of time on. I spent the major part of my career on indexing. And as you know, it's a very complex subject. I'll start with the latter part of your question, and that is the fragmentation, if you will, of the municipal market. It's interesting, in doing this for 35 years, Fraser, I still can't get a bead on exactly how many issuers there are out there. And I have heard a range from 50,000 on the low end to 85,000 state and local governments on the high end. A number that was bandied about five, six years ago was about 65,000. Pick a number. I've used that 85,000 state and local governments and subdivisions thereof, and about 60,000 of them borrow in the public markets. But I could be wrong. So don't hold me to any specific number. Anyway, there are about a million individual bonds that exist out there today. So to compare that with other markets, and again, I don't have exact numbers, but let's say corporate issuers, investment grade corporate issuers in the United States probably total around 5,000, between five and 6,000, and there are probably 30,000 individual bonds that are held by institutional individual investors in the corporate market. In the municipal market, that number again is about 1 million. So you can immediately see that there are orders of magnitude more municipal bonds than there are corporate bonds. And if we look at the way those bond deals, those loans are structured, it introduces a lot more complexity into the market. For example, a corporate bond may come to market where they offer a two-year note, a 10-year note, and a 30-year long bond, three maturities. And those securities typically won't have call features on them, options that allow the issuer to refinance early. Whereas a municipal bond issue typically has 20, 25 different maturities. Anything beyond 10 years is callable. And one can immediately see how that complicates things, not the least of which is to say that there's far less liquidity in the smaller issues than there are in the larger issues. And so just the way a deal is structured in the corporate market provides liquidity in the market, in the secondary marketplace, whereas the smaller the issues, the less liquidity there is in the municipal market. So that presents fragmentation, to say the least. If we look at indexing, I always used the Standard & Poor's family of municipal bond indices because it's the broadest index. And I'm going to say they have about 211,000 securities in that index today. And it totals, I'm going to take a stab here, I'm going to say $1.7 in total market value. Bear in mind, the entire municipal market is about $4 trillion, a little less than $4 trillion. So it's a great sampling of the entire municipal market. 
and it has almost a quarter of the total QCIPs outstanding. So it was a great representation of the municipal market, and that's why I used it. However, as a practical matter, even the wealthiest folks in the world couldn't buy the index for a multiplicity of reasons, not the least of which are that even if you bought the smallest amount available in any one bond, you still wouldn't have, I dare say, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos still couldn't have every bond in the index. Not to mention the fact that not everything's for sale. So if we think about it this way, when Mr. and Mrs. Main Street buy a bond from their broker, their representative, that will typically go into an account. And we say the market vernacular is that bond goes away, meaning it is in an account and it's very unlikely to come out for sale again. Or if it is to come out for sale, it's going to be a very long time. And so even if I wanted to buy that bond, Mr. and Mrs. Smith own it. They don't know I want to buy it. Their representative doesn't know I want to buy it. And therefore, it's not for sale. And I, as an institutional investor who's trying to index, I don't even know where that bond is. I don't know who owns it. And so that makes for a lot of friction in the market. And that complicates indexing enormously. What institutional investors do in order to compensate for that problem is statistical sampling. And so they think of the market as clusters of states, sectors, characteristics of municipal bond types. And then they start to try to get fungible securities to represent what would be an index. I have two points on that. The first one is, is that municipal bond management is functionally an active management space. And two, if you are John Q investor and you want to quote unquote index your bond market exposure or more specifically your muni bond exposure, you got to get it out of your head that this is an S&P 500 proxy. This is an exercise in statistical sampling. You could be overrepresented, underrepresented, not represented in a variety of different situations. And many times the index itself may not even represent a good proxy for what your investment purposes should be. That's exactly right. If I think about an SMA account as holding, say, 3 to 5% positions, the larger the portfolio, the more bonds it can make to make sense to own. But if I think of 25 to 30 different positions in a portfolio, you can see where credit work becomes very important. Whereas in an index, a single credit can go south, it can get downgraded, or even worse, it can default, and it doesn't affect the index at all. It won't affect the profile of the index and it won't affect the outcome, the performance of the index. Whereas in a separately managed account, that's not true at all. And so those three to 5% positions that a manager might target are very important in the portfolio. But to your point, it's not buying an S&P 500 index. It's not buying a group of stocks that represents the S&P 500. The most important thing that I think is to remember is that I can't always buy what I want to buy when I'm managing a municipal bond portfolio. I'm subject to the vagaries of the market, to supply and demand, and what's out there right now. And I have to make the best of that opportunity set. So let's pause for a second as it relates to how the muni bond market works and some of the challenges that are there. You've spent a lot of time and thought in the technology space with market access, and your latest venture and some of the consulting that you're doing, a lot of what you're describing seems to me to be 
discovery of issues, the tracking of information, the real understanding of what the total market is in a world where there's a lot of opacity to it. What is the state of technology as it relates to the municipal bond market? What are you thinking about in terms of getting your arms around the size and complexity and then being able to take the cover off and see what is underneath and improve the transparency around it? I've often said that the municipal bond market is probably 10 to 15 years, and I may be generous in saying 10 to 15 years behind other fixed income classes in terms of adopting technology, deploying technology. And my time at Market Access really galvanized that view for me. However, I think it's coming around. Technology in the taxable fixed income markets, and if we use let's call it investment-grade credit, corporate bonds as a proxy for the taxable fixed income markets. That's been around since the early 2000s, and it accelerated during the credit crisis and a need for liquidity. And the municipal market has been slower to adopt those kinds of technologies. I think part of it is because of the nature of the asset class itself, and we've talked about some of those things, But I also think that there are a couple of different factors that weigh heavy on the municipal market as being a later adopter or a later adapter of technology. One of them is that most of the resources in the large banks and the large asset management companies are allocated, most of the technology resources are allocated to taxable fixed income. It's because that's where the bigger markets are. It's where more money is made, and it's more sophisticated in general, or at least it's perceived as more sophisticated. And therefore, through the natural course of resource allocation, tends to be more advanced. And it continues to be more advanced. And that's where all the capital, or not all of it, but a large portion of the capital, both technologically and human capital, is allocated. Coming out of graduate school, out of the top business schools, I scarcely hear that somebody wants to spend their career as a municipal bond trader or a municipal bond portfolio manager, but that's not true in other in other fixed income asset classes. And so the talent, the technology tends to veer toward other classes. But I also think there's a demographic. Because of that, the demographic in the municipal market tends to be much more middle-aged. And with that middle-aged demographic, comes a resistance to technology. And that may be a misnomer because it may be more about a fear of losing jobs than it does in a fear of technology. But either way, it doesn't really matter. There is a resistance there. Then there are complexities with the municipal market, many of which we've unpacked here, that just make the technology harder to adopt. As we think about this, things like blockchain, artificial intelligence, machine learning to review documents for credit purposes, pipe building, as you sort of canvas the tools that are out there and how they can be applied to the municipal bond market, how do you get your arms around that? I became disillusioned a little bit in exploring these different veins of technology. But I will say that to put a finer point on what I was just going through very quickly, I also think that investors, the buy side and dealers have vendor fatigue. And that comes in two strains, in my view. Part of it is that companies make claims that they simply 
can't live up to immediately. It's on the whiteboard. They aspire to doing things and they simply can't do them. And then the other is that they claim to do something revolutionary. And lo and behold, it's the same old technology that people have been using, but it's in a different form. It's a different user interface and it claims to do different things. And I think what happens is both dealers and the buy side become a little bit jaded when new technologies come into the market saying, yeah, we've seen that before. We just don't have the time anymore to look at it or the interest. So I think that's a challenge for technology companies. I also see technology companies developing monolithic applications. So you mentioned blockchain. I look at blockchain companies doing distributed ledger. I look at AI companies doing AI. I look at portfolio management companies doing portfolio management. I look at news scraping services doing news scraping. And part of the thrill that I have in my seat right now, Fraser, is that I get a chance to do due diligence on a lot of these different technologies. In turn, I am consulting with dealers, I'm consulting with vendors in product development, and I'm consulting with buy-side firms. And I can imagine in my mind's eye smashing some of these technologies together, some of these monolithic technologies. And again, I'm talking in general terms, it's not true with all of them. But I can imagine a world where there's cross-pollination of some of these technologies and bringing these things together actually can deliver some really unique results in the marketplace. And that's what I'm thrilled about today. What is some of the low-hanging fruit or a problem that you're working on that you think you might be able to chip away at with some technological resources? Well, you mentioned artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence can be in algorithmic trading. It can be in large language models like we've seen with ChatGPT. It can be a number of different machine learning, natural language processing, working with mathematical problems such as algorithmic trading. But if I look at things like algorithmic trading, when I was at Market Access, I saw the beginnings of a proliferation of algorithmic trading, and that's AI in the truest sense. And what I would see is that when a portfolio manager would put out a list of bonds, say 100 bonds for the bid to get dealers to bid on that list of bonds, I would immediately see six or seven or eight responses come over in the course of what seemed like milliseconds from algorithmic shops some of the big banks, but also some boutique shops, they have an algorithm that will automatically bid those securities and put a price on them. Well, if you think about where the bottleneck is, it's on the other side of the machine. It's not with the dealer that's putting an algorithmic price on the bonds, a bid, if you will. But if you turn around and look at the portfolio manager that actually put that list out for the bid, That portfolio manager now has to go through each response and evaluate whether they're going to sell it or not, and what is a fair price and what is not. I see a lot of application right now of using that same algorithmic pricing that's used on the dealer side over on the buy side, so that what ultimately could happen is that machine is talking to machine when it comes to making markets in bonds and when it comes to bidding and offering bonds. The response time can accelerate. And with accelerated response time, I think you'll see turnover start to accelerate and therefore liquidity in the market. So I think that is in the process of becoming a game changer. 
Let's talk about the municipalities for a second. So the municipal bond market is the way that towns and states and nations raise money. They borrow it from the investor and then use it for worthwhile projects. Sometimes not worthwhile, but hopefully worthwhile. Where does the technology infrastructure help with them, either in devising better terms that they're working under or maybe just accessing the market in a different way? Well, platforms exist right now where an issuer's advisor, municipal advisor, can put a deal out for the bid and dealers can bid on that electronically. And that has changed the market. The main vendor in that space is a company called IPRIO, and it's owned by Standard & Poor's. And that helps disseminate new deals into the marketplace. But I think that there are some less obvious benefits that issuers could derive from the rest of the market applying technology. If we consider the idea that only about one quarter of 1% of the entire municipal market, so let's call it a $4 trillion market, only about, call it 12.5% or 12.5 billion of that $4 trillion market actually transacts each day. So if we round down to 10 billion, that's what, about a quarter of a percent every day. And the interesting thing is the majority of that quarter of a percent varies from day in and day out and day in. And so it becomes very difficult for an issuer or their advisor to really have true price discovery in what that issuer's bonds are trading at in the secondary market. Most issuers look to the secondary market where their bonds are trading to be a guidepost of where a fair yield on their new issue ought to be brought to market at. And both advisor, banker, and issuer alike could benefit from a much more fluid transacting market in the secondary market for municipals, having much more price discovery, having real-time pricing, and therefore translating those real-time prices into a new issue price that's fair and one that will provide liquidity to the marketplace. I think of it like this. We are now working in a world where neural networks, deep learning are coming to the fore. Our phones can recognize our faces. And that's amazing. We are now entering a world where those same kinds of technologies will be applied in the municipal fixed income space where it was and is very fragmented, very disparate. And I think we're going to see over the next five to 10 years, a new market, one that we won't recognize as we know it today. Super interesting. The interest rate world is, I'll call it normalizing it in the sense that we're going from a zero interest rate environment to we've had a little bit of a spike. We referenced Silicon Valley Bank before as one of the institutions that tripped over that. But now you look at two-year treasuries at or approaching 5%, which to me seems like a level that is quote unquote normal or something that people may have been used to before. How do you view the interest rate move and let's call it normalization to the extent it may normalize? And what impacts do you see that having? Is this maybe a way for money and resources to get back into the muni bond system in terms of investment from firms? I think it makes sense to see higher interest rates as more appetizing to fixed income investors. And so I think that at some point, an equilibrium will be reached where investors will start to come back into that space. 
reallocating capital into the municipal market. My only caution is that, you know, look over the last two years and look at the volatility that we've experienced in the market and understand that that can happen again and it can happen from here. And so that's not meant to ward off prospective investors in fixed income. And it's not advice by any stretch of the imagination. What it is, is saying that you're entering capital markets where volatility exists. And just because something trended a certain way over the last 24 months or the last 12 months doesn't mean it's going to continue that direction, or it may mean that it can continue in that direction. And while some may say that the pain's already been felt and I'm ready to get back in, there may be more bloodletting, there may be more pain, and you just need to be prepared for that. And you need to consider that before allocating. And that's where, if we go back to the beginning of our discussion, that's where this whole horizon sensitivity analysis, whatever you want to call it, shocking the portfolio, shocking my strategy by raising interest rates, lowering interest rates, extending time horizons, shortening them so that I get a good flavor for just how much principal risk there may be in the marketplace and how much I can tolerate. I think that's the most important lesson that we've gotten over the last 24 months. Steve, you've got a future in podcast hosting. You co-opted my follow-up question all the way through. (laughs) (laughs) I should say one more thing, Fraser, and that is nothing that I've said here or that I will say constitutes anything like investment advice. This is all conversational and anyone who is listening should consult with their financial advisor. No, I mean, this is meant to be thought-provoking, but it's definitely not investment advice. Well, while we're getting ready to wind up here, if you look into the municipal bond world in the next five to 10 years, where it looks like technological innovation is starting to drip on it, and then that will create some acceleration and some process building and things like that. What do you see in your crystal ball there as far as some improvements, maybe some progress that's going to happen in the space that you think people might be interested in following? I'm not sure whether it's an improvement per se, but making tax-exempt municipal bonds taxable would solve a myriad of other problems. And I'm not advocating for that, by the way. And in fact, I've been an ardent supporter of the tax exemption. But by removing the tax exemption, making what are now tax-exempt municipal bonds taxable, they would enjoy the advantages of other taxable fixed income classes. Number one, you could hedge them with treasuries. That would be a fantastic advantage in order to provide liquidity into the market for dealers to be able to provide liquidity. And if you change the term structure of these issues, as I described them, and you didn't have the 10-year calls and you had more bullet structures, twos, fives, tens, and thirties, you would have larger individual maturity sizes in these deals. And therefore, you would have more liquidity, presumably, in those issues. So there are a couple of things that could take place over time that could make it easier. But there's one hedge fund investor that termed it like this. The big problem that we have in the municipal market is that we have a very heterogeneous borrowing base, that is to say the issuers, and we have a very homogenous lending base, and that is individual investors. And as long as that exists, we have this friction of poor price transmission. 
And so I think certainly losing the tax exemption would open the world, as we saw with Build America bonds back post-credit crisis, that fetched global interest in those markets. Remember that foreign investors and qualified programs like pensions and 401ks can't take advantage of the tax exemption. Getting rid of the tax exemption would broaden that audience. And so that may provide more liquidity. But as long as we have the tax exemption, I think we're going to have a fragmented market. Getting rid of that tax exemption doesn't bring benefits alone. It also would raise the borrowing cost of state and local governments. And last I checked, I believe our infrastructure gets something like a D or a D minus grade by the Society of Civil Engineers. And so I may be dated on that, but it's not a good grade. And so putting more pressure on borrowing costs by state and local governments probably isn't the answer either. And so I think we're going to muddle along, but technology is changing and I think we'll be able to deploy it in the existing milieu. Terrific stuff. Steve, how do our listeners find you? You can get me on LinkedIn. I think I'm the only or one of the only Stephen Wintersteins on LinkedIn. And my email address is spw at spwllc.com. I will have that on the show notes. Steve, uh, education and a fun one at that every time. Glad we were able to connect and do this. And at the same time, I hope you have a great rest of the Thanksgiving weekend. You're doing anything fun? We're just hanging around the house and I'm talking to different technology companies over the next three weeks and seeing what I can smash together to make new solutions. Awesome. Well, when something pops up in the muni market, we're having you back on. And in the meantime, we'll let you go and have a great weekend. Fraser, thanks. Same to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.